and welcome to this week's Over the Farmgate podcast with me, Emily Ashworth, the Farmer's Guardian's Features Editor. Now, this week is a rather special one as we celebrate the Queen's Jubilee. The Crown of England, the Archbishop performs the simple yet the most significant ceremony of the Queen's coronation. And in honour of this, me and livestock specialist Hannah Park listen to memories from those in the farming community who have met Her Majesty. We have also got a one-off Jubilee special in the magazine, so don't forget to check that out. I also spoke to Emma Buckley from Cheshire-based business Buckley's Bees for this month's Farming Can campaign. Now, Farming Can looks at the vital role farming plays across society. And in this episode, Emma highlights the benefits of having hives on farm and the importance of pollinators. It's certainly a jam-packed episode, so why not sit back, grab a cup of tea, and enjoy this rather royal podcast. Welcome everyone to the first half of this podcast where me and Hannah Park listen back to some memories from the farming community. I think it's safe to say, isn't it Hannah, that the royal family have always been somehow entwined in the farming industry? Yeah, definitely. And especially Charles, uh, his involvement in PCF and his passion for careers is really clear isn't it and it's obviously something that he cares a lot about um, and the royals care a lot about um, the countryside and farming so it's been really nice to put this together hasn't it? Yes and uh, one thing that's been quite a constant is uh, royal presence at uh, agricultural shows across the country Um, so first up we have Bill Cowling. Now I spoke to Bill who was the show director at the Great Yorkshire Show for over 10 years the Queen visited the show four times, uh, but it was Bill who had the pleasure of spending some extra unexpected time with her, you could say. Um, so you were show director, is that right? I was show director at that time of the Great Yorkshire Show, yes. How long were you show director for, Bill? I was show director for uh, 10 years, maybe 11, 10 years anyway. 10 years. And are you from a farming background? Yes, where we uh, we have a we farm near Panel, just only about three miles from the showground, oh, south okay. of Harrogate. Panel, south of Harrogate. What do you farm, or what did you farm? We used to, we used to have dairy cows up to about twenty years ago, and then um, the dairy cows went. And uh, my sons do the farming now, mostly. I still walk about on the farm, you know, uh, help might not be an appropriate word, I don't think so, perhaps. But, um, uh, but now we have um, we've some arable and beef cattle and sheep. Okay. So quite a big change then? Yes. Well, it's a big change from when we had dairy cows, mm. yes, very much so. Okay, so let's talk about when... Um, you you met the Queen. Um, what what was the occasion? Is it just the once that you met her, or have you met her uh, multiple yes, times? Yeah, no, I've only uh, met her once, which is wonderful. Um, it was for the Great Yorkshire Show. Her, the, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh visited the Great Yorkshire Show. And what was your role in that? Were, were you showing them around? Were you? Yes, yeah. I, I um, had the honour to show. Um, Her Majesty around. My wife actually uh, looked after the Duke, but um, we, because their visits 
you know, it, they split up on the showground to cover more of the showground. But I was, I showed her around most of the show, in fact. What did you, I mean, were you nervous before before you met her? Because I always think if you're going to meet the Queen, that's quite a big event, isn't it? It is quite a big event. <laughs> Just a little one. It's a huge event. Um, yeah, a lot of planning goes into it, of course, which tends to um, allay the nerves rather because you know what is coming, as it were. You know what's planned and what should be happening. And uh, we'd had the honour of um, Prince Charles and Princess Anne um, before at the show, so we knew, to some extent, what a royal visit was about. So when before you meet the Queen, um, are you briefed on anything, on how you should... Um, I mean, you know, I've read a lot about how before you meet her, you, ha- you, you obviously got to call her um, a certain name and um, that sort of thing was... What's yes, that side of things? That, that sort of information tends to come out with the meetings. Uh, we have several meetings with the Queen's representatives, as it were, um, private secretaries, and also with the security um, aspect of the, of the visit. So that sort of thing tends to come out at that time. It's not as, we didn't find it anyway, as prescribed as people might say, that, you know, you must do this and you must do that. It's recommended how things work, and they work perfectly well on that um, on that basis. So the all-important question, Bill, is what was she like? She was wonderful. Um, she was... Uh, obviously a huge um, empathy and understanding of farming and rural life, which is a great help for a visit like that because there's a sympathy there and a, um, a, a, a hope to meet people and understand. And um, the royal family are professionals at what they do. They're very good at putting people at their ease and showing an interest and... Uh, an understanding of what people doing, you know, the people that we meet. But I don't, well, I don't know whether you know or not, but the visit was not quite as originally planned when, when we were planning it. It changed, rather, as the as the day approached. Oh, I don't right. know whether you knew about that or not. No, I don't. What, what happened? Well, we, we, as you do with these royal visits, you try for sometimes years to get, and particularly the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, you you apply and and it takes a long time, generally speaking, years ahead um, for those visits to be confirmed. And anyway, ours was confirmed. It's usually in the autumn for the Great Yorkshire Show timing in Ju- July. It's usually sort of the autumn or um, Christmas time of the year before when it's confirmed that a visit will take place. And this was planned that she would come in the morning, she would come to us and stay for about three hours, and then she was off to Hull, to the hospital or something in Hull. Anyway, that was the plan. And then about, oh, I suppose about six weeks, something like that, before the actual date, David Davis, who is still uh, an MP in East Yorkshire, fell out with the Conservative Party and he resigned his seat. 
then he immediately decided he would stand again for the seat. He was, seemed as though he was drawing attention to himself, so we say. And so it caused a by-election in his constituency, which is near Hull. And the um, protocol is that the monarch cannot visit an area where there is a by-election. Oh, it, yeah. okay. So we thought, oh, that's jiggered it. We've lost our, you know, we've lost our royal visit because mm. they're not going to... Anyhow, there was a few days and a phone call or two to, between the palace and ourselves. And uh, anyway, the palace then came back. They, they had been... Um, talking to the principals, as they call them, the, um, the, the Queen, the principal, um, and she had said, well, can we stay a bit longer at the Great Yorkshire Show? So in the end, our royal visit was five hours, which is an unheard of length of royal visit. Usually they're more like one hour, you know, and, it, yeah. and we, we had it for almost five hours. Oh, wow, more than you bargained for. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. It is. It was wonderful and is wonderful, yes. I think um, the other aspect as well, isn't it, is that she, along with um, you know other members of the royal family, they are huge advocates of the countryside, um, and that's such a benefit for us because you know as you'll know, there's a lot of negativity around farming, mm. so it's nice to have people of such stature who really support it. Absolutely so, and you know the as I mentioned earlier, their understanding all the royal family, not just the Queen, but uh, Prince Charles, Princess Anne. You know, I was lucky enough in my time; I'd eight royal visits in ten years, so you wow. know it was wonderful. And but an understanding and a um, a willingness to listen, but to listen with knowledge. You know, they they know what they people are saying to them and understand what people are saying to them and it was it's wonderful it's wonderful it's a huge we we regarded the visit as with all the royal visits as a huge honor for the great yorkshire show and for yorkshire but also for the agricultural community you know and it's it's terrific that the um, that the royal family are so supportive 70 years on the throne it's you know it's a terrific thing to uh, to achieve and, and and to be part of it i mean in my before i became the show director as it were when i was a farmer i'm still am a farmer in a way but i never ever thought that i would meet up with the with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and Prince Charles and Princess Anne and the Chancellor of Wessex and you know it, it just it's something that doesn't happen to ordinary people and you know I just feel so honoured to have been part of it. Okay, that was great to hear from Bill. Um, pretty cool, calm, and collected. I don't think I would be so calm um, in that environment, and I would definitely pronounce. Something wrong. <laughs> um, I think that was lovely, and I think that's so uh, so humble of him to to say what he said about obviously being a humble farmer. But I think that's something that a lot of can resonate with um, that they think oh it's not going to happen to them, and and I'm never going to meet the Queen. But he's uh, evidence that it does happen, and it happens to to people from from all walks of life. So 
yeah, really, really nice to hear from no. Bill. And I think as well that, you know, he expressed how much gratitude he has for the fact that she actually cares about, you know, where she is, who she's speaking to, what she's talking about. I think that counts for a lot as well. Um, but I think it's yeah. only fitting to talk about what the Queen must have witnessed over her seven decades on the throne. Of course, she started in the post-war era. Uh, spirits needed lifting and food production was a focal you know, a focal point. Um, but to look back on that, I mean, wow. What has she gone through? Yeah, amazing. Um, she's lived through so much um, and has such a such a long, long reign and, and so much must have changed for her in, in that time. Um, just looking at an overview we've got here, um, and it's amazing to look back on. Um, things like the introduction of milk quotas in the 80s, um, foot and mouth in 2001, to more recently Brexit in 2016, and, and now the kind of huge environmental push, um, although this is something that Prince Charles has perhaps inherited. But it, yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's probably something that a lot of listeners and, and readers can resonate with, um, the, how the times have changed and, and what they were doing in those different eras and how their life has reflected, reflect on how their life has changed and how they've um, sort of moved, moved through those eras. But the Queen's been kind of constant throughout. Definitely. I was just about to say, it's mo- she's moved with them. And obviously it's now obviously filtered down uh, right through the royal family from those on the throne before her too. Um, so next up, we have Welsh journalist Gaynor Morgan. Hannah, you spoke to Gaynor, who is a former BBC Wales journalist, um, and she's very well known within the Welsh farming community, and obviously we know her well too. We do, yeah. So we will we'll leave you with Gaynor. It was a pleasure to speak to her. Hi, Gaynor, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, pleasure to have you with us. We're interested really in, in your memory from a sort of different angle, um, which I'll let you explain. But um, it's it's probably a bit strange for you being on the other end of the of the interviewing for this, is it? It is, yes. Um, so, again, did you just want to introduce yourself and just explain sort of what, what you do um, and just set the scene for us a little bit? Okay, well, I'm a freelance journalist and PR, and I spent about 20 years with the BBC after um, local local radio and the rest, and sort of gravitated towards being um, agricultural correspondent and um, generally a, a farming business, uh, a farming reporter because um, my background's in farming and uh, it just seemed to sort of evolve along that way, and it's it's nice because you, you meet nice people and you make lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and your role at the BBC, how long um, were you there for and were you involved in sort of everything from TV production to radio? What sort of thing did you do there? Well, I, I was in the BBC for about 20 years and I started in, in general news. But before that, for local radio, I'd done sort of um, farming programmes. Um, and I also worked on the, um, you'll never have heard of it, the farmer stock breeder. I was PA to the editor, Monty Keane, who some ancient people might remember. Um, so, <laughs> so I had a background in, um, in farming and farming journalism. But I, I joined the BBC as a general reporter and we Radio Wales, and then I did a stint on Wales Today, 
And then I went on to our countryside farming programmes and um, then I started probably the most enjoyable time of my life where I was um, producing and presenting weekly radio programmes for Radio Wales about farming in the countryside and daily news bulletins and also working for news. It's a bit of a topsy-turvy, hectic time where mm. I'm jack of all trades and master of none, I'm afraid. <laughs> We don't believe that for a second. So um, you um, have kindly got in touch with me and, and said that um, you were lucky enough to meet the Queen at, at some stage in your career, um, which is um, which was, I'm sure, a bit of a high. So um, what was the occasion then? And um, can you remember just a little bit about what happened and what she was there for? Well, it was 1983 and it was um, it was really exciting, certainly in terms of, of the Royal Welsh and the fact the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh arrived. And, of course, they arrived at Gibby Gates and they've got their carriages and, you know, all the, the great and the good meet them and it's, it's all absolutely wonderful. And you can imagine it's a very expectant crowd. And I, I don't think she had visited for quite a while. I know she visited as, as Princess Elizabeth in 1947 before the show was established at um, Colonel was and of course she's the, the patron of the society. So anyway, it was long anticipated. For me personally, I wouldn't even have said it was a big gig. It was just absolutely terrifying. I'd only been in the BBC a few months and I was seconded onto Wales today. And with my farming connections, I suppose they thought I'd be a, a good one to do the, the sort of daily news of the Queen's visit. Mm-hmm. And this was for Welsh television, and it was also for national television. And in those days, television and BBC and everything was, was much more formal than it is now, so everything was fairly rigid. And I was just terrified of making a mistake. And for some bizarre reason, never mind you've got someone talking in your ear all the time, <laughs> and things are changing all the time with every minute of the day. Um, and it was a very, very hot day, and I still don't really remember why they told me to walk backwards in front of the Queen. Mm-hmm. And I swear, I walked backwards in front of the Queen for about an hour with my clipboard <laughs> in the heat. And she did look at me once or twice. And if you're from Wales and you're in farming and you're in the media, you know everyone. So every now and again, someone say, again! <laughs> <laughs> in amidst all the waving at the Queen and the heat and everything else. And I suppose I was trying to make notes. I think the purpose of it was that I'd be then able to script the shots Mm -hmm. and I'd remember what was happening. Anyway, the one big thing that you always remember is that you never speak to royalty, you never approach them, you interview the people that they have spoken to and all Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So we were heading towards the Forestry Commission building. It was a new building, and the Queen was going to open it. So we got there, we duly got there, and it's a blur from then on, except that I went up the steps into the Forestry Commission building, blindingly hot day, and it takes a while for your eyes to focus, doesn't Mm. it, once you get into the darkened room, and there was the Queen. I couldn't believe it. And there was no one else there. There wasn't a soul. So it was just the Queen with her handbag. <laughs> so I was standing there. I can't breathe now thinking about it. And I had the clipboard in my right hand. She had her handbag in 
her right hand, which was opposite me, and she just coolly looked at me, and the, from what you read, the Queen is famously calm. And, you know, she had watched me for an hour, I suppose, or at least not watched me, noticed me, and I was walking in front of her backwards. And it seemed as if it was forever, and then she imperceptibly nodded her head. And stupidly, and with her handbag and her arm, and stupidly, I nodded my head back. <laughs> and then... Just people just came and there was chaos and, you know, it's obviously, you know, why was she there on her own with me? And um, and then the, 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 the protest continued. She opened the Foster Commission building and um, I'm not quite sure what happened after that. <laughs> so we cut the film and put the news bulletins and programmes together and that was the end of it. <laughs> but to this day, I can't fathom why the Queen was allowed to be in the Forestry Commission building on her own and why I... Then told to go in there. <laughs> so that's my memory. No, that's uh, that is funny, and yeah, I can certainly relate to that sort of rushing around <laughs> the show and uh, seeing somebody in every two seconds. But you really need to get on with the job and yeah. trying to be polite, but you need to need to rush. So yeah, I can I can imagine that that was a uh, quite a challenge. But no, that sounds that sounds great, and yeah, clearly etched in your memory that um that she. <laughs> The experience of being alone with with the Queen, which is probably something that not a lot of us can can say in our lifetime. So, um, so there we go. <laughs> well, no, it's just this thing that you're not allowed to no. say anything, and and it was just the most bizarre thing. And and as such, it sort of rubbed out everything else about the day because yes. that's, that's all I can really remember. And I suppose then it was just such a rush, really. You know, putting the words together and cutting the shots, and then we had a piece on national news in the evening. And all that it was just you know such but yeah it was a great day it was a really wonderful day fantastic well thank you um looking forward to adding that into the mix of our um our memories and i'm sure that um they're all gonna be very different so it's 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 fun to hear okay so yeah we've both worked with with gainer haven't we through our time at fg um so it's lovely to hear from someone on on the the same side of the fence as us kind of someone that we can really relate to I guess um like um I certainly felt that when I was speaking to Gaynor that I could uh, imagine myself in that position and feeling the sort of nerves and anticipation that she was obviously feeling that day definitely I mean you go to and, and cover more shows than I do but I just don't think that you could ever prepare yourself no matter what situation you're in as a journalist I just don't think you could prepare yourself for being locked in a room with the queen <laughs> I just don't know how how you would present yourself and I think she did very well you know for her nerves not to take over and um, say something accidentally or unexpected so that was great to hear from Gaynor. Next up we've got a memory from one of farming's much loved ladies Kate Bevan from Wales. Um, Most people probably know Kate would you say Hannah from uh, Lambing Live? Yeah, possibly um, a familiar face from our screens a few years ago. I'm sure many of you have seen her on that. Yep. So here she shares with us um, her memory of when she was invited to her church service uh, 10 years ago for the last Jubilee. Um, her her moment with the Queen, as she describes it, um, and also her latest um, achievement, which is uh, her MBE. So let's see what she has to say. Do you want to just tell me about um, 
how did this come about then? What was the what was the situation when um, you you were able to meet the Queen? Right. So um, there's a couple of things actually. So uh, uh, it was in 2012 for the Diamond Jubilee, and I received um, an invitation to attend a church service. Um, with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and a few other people as well. It wasn't just <laughs> it wasn't just me, um, but yeah, very. I'm not sure why I was invited. It was lovely. Um, I, I borrowed a hat, got a frock, <laughs> and uh, the security was pretty high. We uh, we had security. We had to go through. We had to take our passports, and then we boarded a bus, and uh, we were taken to the destination. And uh, and yeah, it was a lovely service. And the Queen was actually sat not far from me, so I was I was sat near near the front, and she was actually sat. Um, do you imagine like the choir stool? So she's sort of looking across, and we eyeballed. We had an eyeballing moment. So I didn't actually get to speak to her, but we did look at each other. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'm looking at the Queen, and she's looking at me. And then afterwards, whatever um, entourage, this gentleman came up, uh, and came up to me and said, "I have to say, we think you've got the." best hat in the church and I was like oh thank you very much so uh, I went back to my sister-in-law because that's who I borrowed the hat off and she was over the moon um and we're actually so that was um for the diamond jubilee and next Wednesday uh or is it it's a week on Wednesday the whole family were off to the palace uh, we've been invited to Buckingham Palace for a a garden party, um, but I'm not quite sure if the Queen... It says the Queen will be there, but I'm not quite sure if she will, because obviously, you know, she's limited to what she's doing at the moment. Um, but that came about because I... Um, I have no idea why, but I was I was awarded an MBE, which was, which was lovely, and it was just at the beginning of lockdown. Um, and because of lockdown, obviously, you can't go in and, and pick it up, and it was strict rules... So we had a choice. I could either, this was earlier this year, go to Windsor or the Palace um, to collect the MBE, but I could only take one person, or I could have a local ceremony and pick it up here and take the whole family. And if we opted to do that, the whole family then get invited to the Palace Garden Party. So it was a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, we actually went to Rodney Parade, Rugby Ground in, in Newport, and uh, we had a lovely day. Um, and, and yeah, now we're getting excited because the invite only came through last week um, to the Garden Party. And yeah, we're all off, myself and my husband and the kids. And um, wow. we're going to the Palace. Yes, that's so, so exciting. Back to my sister-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> for another hat. I mean, when you get the royal seal of approval for a hat, I think you need to, you know, you need to keep that going, don't you? To be honest. <laughs> I think you do. The, the thing is... That's a lot of I pressure. Am, I am, yeah, and I'm a wellies girl, you know. It's either wellies, flip-flops and, and overalls. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've been off to the charity shop again. I've got another frock now. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I'm going to see the same sister-in-law and uh, get a matching hat and see if see if I can, you know... Fab. Top it. Yeah, fab. Can you just explain to everyone, please, um, Kate, what what the what you were awarded the MBE for? Um, it's uh, it was services to to farming, which which is amazing, really, because I I'm still not sure I deserve it. I think 
to be honest, I've just been around a long time doing what I do. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it's still, it's still a bit of a mystery because I'm not quite sure. You, you don't find out about the nomination or anything because I did ask. So it was a complete bolt out of the blue. And I had a couple of suspects I sort of asked, I said, was it you, was it you? But it wasn't. So still to this day, I have no idea where it sort of um, stemmed from. Yeah. And when the, when the initial email, because it was an email first that came through, um, and I was, I will be honest, I was, I was laughing at it. I was like, ah, Jim, look at this spam. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was going to delete it. And he said, well, look, there's a number there. Why don't you ring? So I did. And it was... Uh, it was real. It, it's oh my I goodness! Mean, can you imagine if you just <laughs> if you deleted that? I know. But you know the thing was when I woke up um, and and asked, you know, is this is this real? Is it a spam? She was lovely and um, obviously not the queen. Was <laughs> on the other side of yeah. the phone. And she said, uh, "You're not the first person to ring and ask." So so apparently other people had, um, yeah. had done the same because you don't expect it. No. You just don't expect that sort of email through. I can imagine, but you you definitely do deserve it. So I'm sure there's a lot of people oh, who will listen to this that. and say the same thing. Um, so in the in 2012, when you say you went to um, a church service, where where exactly was that? That was in Ebervale, so South Wales, not not a million miles away from us. It's only half an hour away, um, and um, and yeah, it was just a service of celebration, really, for the Diamond yeah. Jubilee. Yeah. Um, in the presence of Her Majesty the Queen and His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. So I... it's quite nice, sort of ten years on. Yeah. Um, we're going in the week that um, obviously she's now celebrating a platinum jubilee. So. Yeah, it's, it sort it's, of follows on a decade later. Definitely. My other question is what there's not, you know, many high profile people like the royal family who really are true advocates of farming. Yeah, yeah. They are I think it's not just farming. I think well well first of all, um we're a tiny island, aren't we? But they make this island very, very special. Um everybody knows who we are very British, but also it, it's not just farming. I think it's the country way of life um, and the traditions that go with it. And I know that there are big advocates of, of family farming because obviously we're, we're not a massive farm and we're a traditional family farm as, as many are, particularly here in Wales. Um, and Charles, I mean, I think he was ahead of his time really with the environmental issues and sustainability, um, but they, they do... I know they get a knocking, but bless them, they, they really do bang the drum for us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and the Queen especially. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, people see them and we'll go to the palace and it's a grand place. But would you really want that job? Yeah. What a responsibility. The, the, you know, your lack of privacy, everything you do, you can't go out in public without, you know, without your anybody protecting you. And then you've got the paparazzi and, you know, it's... I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like the job. I do take my hats off to them. I think they're they're pretty amazing, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I guess just finally, what does it mean to be able to, you know, in a few weeks you're going to be, you know, at this garden party with your family. Yeah. That's quite that's special, good. isn't it? Especially this year. Yeah, I think that's going to be emotional. I mean, we've um, the invites just come through. I think they're leaving them last minute because. So obviously we don't we don't know how um, the Queen is. I watched 
I know she was at the horse event from, um, I believe it was, you know, the last couple of days and I was watching her there and, and she, she still looks amazing. Yeah. Um, as a family, yeah, and I've no regrets making that decision um, and, and to take to take the whole family down because when, when are you going to get the opportunity again to walk around the gardens of Buckingham Palace with the family? Um, yeah, it's going to be... It's going to be like the Beverly Hillbillies in, in London. I mean, we are country bumpkins, and, you know, actually, we've got to find the place first. So I'm hoping, you know, we put the train tickets. It's sort of, OK, Palace yes. has got to be around here somewhere, I'm sure. Um, Set off the day before, yes. <laughs> Okay, that was great to hear from Kate. I think it was nice to hear how um, down to earth she was about it all and how, you know, this is quite a big thing just for for normal people, isn't it, to get invited to something so prestigious and royal. Yeah, I think so. And I definitely related to the thoughts that must have been going through her head when she thought, oh, I'm going to be meeting the Queen. I need something to wear. I think that's the first thought of many ladies and probably gentlemen. Yeah. when when doing something important so I really like that um she sh- she shared that with us um and yeah not forgetting as Em's already mentioned her MBE um which kind of just highlights what we've said about the Queen um highly regarding farming and um a really really brilliant achievement for Kate so um as she's probably heard many times but very well done and very well deserved well that's been lovely to hear those memories For many, this jubilee is extra special, with some having witnessed her whole reign. But onto something else we should celebrate, and that's this month's Farmers Guardian's Farming Can campaign. With a focus on how farmers can encourage more wildlife on farm, let's hear more from Emma Buckley about the benefits of putting beehives on your farm and just how important pollinators are. So do you want to just give me a little overview of um, Buckley's Bees and um, what you as a company do and who you run it with? Yeah, sure. So um, I set the business up about five years ago now. Um, We've always been beekeepers uh, with bees and beef, actually. So we're a small bee suckler herd, pedigree Hereford. Um, And um, bees have always been part of our lives. My dad's been a beekeeper for over 55 years. So I grew up on our small holding, just with them enrolled in our family life, really. And I decided that we needed to get corporates and other businesses, farmers, everyone that will listen to me involved in trying to save the bees. But not just the bees, it's about all pollinators for us here. Um, and it kind of works hand in hand. So Working with the bees, yes, is a, a massive and important point, but there's so many other pollinators out there that benefit from the good stuff that we're doing with the bees. Um, so I kind of see our honeybees especially as the flagship. It opens the door into helping all the other pollinators and insects. And then in turn, it's a whole ecosystem. So, you know, you start to help out your hedgehogs, your birds, your bats, uh, and it just goes around in a massive circle. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. Um, I did go travelling out to New Zealand and Australia, and I saw how they were beekeeping out there. Okay. Um, they they do pollination services on mass scale, and I I actually didn't really like the way it was done. And they kind of have well, they call them over there as um, filing cabinets. It's similar in America as well. They call them filing cabinets where the beehives are kind of stacked on top of each other, 
and kind of left to their own devices, but moved around to the different crops. Now, pollination is massive and it's one of the main things why we need bees for our food chains, but also for our healthy next generation stock of our hedgerows and our important greenery, woodlands, etc. But um, it didn't sit very well with me. So I, I came home to my dad after traveling, who was retiring, um, and he was winding down his bee colonies to about 10. I came back and I was like, no, we need more bees. <laughs> um, so uh, Glad we suddenly... you did, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's still not retired. He's still going strong and um, is now a big part in the business with me. And it is great. I get to work with him on a daily basis. So I'm very lucky. Where did where did his interest come from in the beginning then? How come he um, started this business? Because obviously I think you can see over the years and probably over the last two years more so that this conversation is becoming more of a conversation, not just in the farming world, but in, in the general public as well. Like it's being made really aware of, isn't it? So he maybe he was maybe slightly ahead of the curve, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely think he was. He, he actually started in a boarding school. He was cleaning out a garage uh, as a prefect and there were some old beehives at the back of one of the garages there. And he saw these and they were having, they were burning everything that was in the garage so that it was being taken down, I think. And um he saw these beehives and thought, well, they're too good to burn. And he asked the teacher if he could have have them. And they said, well, you can, you've got a week. If you can do something with them in a week, then yes, you can have them. So he actually stashed them behind a hedge at boarding school. Um, and then things seem like, you know, people say things line up and it was meant to be. Um, he went home for the summer holidays and uh, he went to his nanny's house um, and she had a lodger there that happened to be a beekeeper and it went from there and actually he then met a beekeeper that was is actually quite a um, well-known beekeeper certainly in the native honeybee breeding association which we're a big part of because that's another thing is breeding native to the right countries and to getting the right gene stock of bee in the right countries and um, Beowulf Cooper who's the guy that dad met was uh, one of the founding members of BIBA, which is our bee, native bee breeding association here in the UK. And, and that's kind of where it started. Beowulf then gave Dad a, a, a swarm, actually, that he'd gone and collected, and that filled his beehive. And he ended up having bees on site at boarding school, and he actually stashed in the top of them all the naughty things that boys are not meant to have at boarding school, uh, cigarettes, um, catapults, all that type of stuff. And bees. We're in the top of the <laughs> beehive. No teacher would go in there to get them. <laughs> Great play. Yeah. <laughs> so are you guys from a farming background somewhere then? Where does that yeah. interest so come my from? Yeah, so dad, my dad's um, farmed um, certainly all of his life. Um, he wasn't initially a farming family, but he bought our place here. He actually bought just the land and then built the, the house, um, the cow sheds, everything from scratch. And the bees obviously moved here with him. And then and we built upwards from there, um, which is, I, I love that because my dad's basically done everything here for us, which is great. Okay, so shall we just talk a bit about then how... Um... So like we mentioned before about the public, is there some sort of facts that we can maybe um, chat about, about the decline of the native honeybee, just to show people, you know, how important, 
you know the work that you're doing with with big corporations as well as farmers and um, you know how important is that in terms of getting that native number back up yeah so the native honeybee actually um was um well we actually thought it was extinct um oh, okay. a decade or so ago a couple of decades ago yeah um but actually fortunately we did find pockets of the native gene um around the uk um that were still live which is amazing um so what's happened over the years is that human intervention unfortunately we've imported different strains of honeybee um from all over the world just as an example the italian honeybee is quite different to our honeybee so they're used to long hot summers and um, different flora flowers flowering at different times you know the climate's very different to here in the uk whereas our native honeybee can actually fly at lower temperatures it's very frugal with its food stores and also with the way that it builds its brood nest. So bees, honeybees have um, a brood nest and what the non-native bees, certainly used to hotter climates, will kind of go boom is, is what we kind of say, because they will build those brood nests massive. And they'll put up lots of honey, which is great for commercial honey producers. But actually, when the weather turns here in the UK, those bees have put loads of baby bees in their little cells. They need to be able to feed them. The weather's gone bad and they haven't got any nectar flow coming in. So those bees need that food. So what can actually quite happen quite regularly if the beekeeper's not on the ball or if these bees haven't got beekeepers, such as wild colonies, is they do actually die out because they've put up all this honey, then they need to use it and then they haven't got anything. So what our native bee does is, is slowly increases its brood nest and to a, to a level that kind of fits the climate. And then they also are much more frugal with their food. So um, they don't put, um, well, some colonies can put up just as much honey, but they're known not to put quite as much honey up. But actually that honey is, is used, it's their food. It's essentially why bees make food, make honey, it is their food. Um, so they fit our climate in a much better way um, than the non-natives. And what's actually happened is the native bee is crossed with the non-native that's come in. And we've got this hybridization now. And what can happen in, um, in the F2 generations is that those, some of those bees can be aggressive. And that's what we don't want. You know, bees, beekeeping bees are a pleasure to be around. And then, like, they're absolutely fascinating. So some of the work that we're doing is to try and increase our native bee populations um, and not, not the hybridization. Yeah. But it's a, you know, it's a, a long, it'll be a long old journey because bees fly, bees open mates. Um, so we get in the drones, which are the male bees. They can come from all over the place to mate with a queen bee. Um, she'll only take one mating flight and we'll mate with about 15 to 20 drones in that flight. And that is her life. And that's, that's all the, the sperm that she will get in that one flight. She'll then save for, it can live up to about five years, but she won't fly again then, unless she's swarming. But that's another, another story of swarming. <laughs> um, are those numbers going back, slowly going back up then? The native bee. So we, are we seeing an increase? We are seeing, yeah, we are seeing an increase and more people now aware. So, Newer beekeepers coming into the into the skill aren't always aware of what's happened with the native bee, so they'll just buy some bees 
Um, what we're trying to do, working with lots of people throughout the country, is in, educate people to buy at least local bees to your area because those bees are more likely to fit with the local flora. For example, the flora in Devon can be very different to the flora in Cheshire, along with the weather can be. So if you're buying local to your area, that's really important. And then the, the fight for having the pure British strain of honeybee can, is then easier because the, the native strain, I think, will always come back around. It will always suit our climate and they will always survive in our natural world better than others from other countries. Just some statistics for you for farmers that are growing food just to um, help people understand how important these are to those pollination services. So, uh, a study has been done on oilseed rape and it shows that between 15 and 20% by just introducing two honeybee colonies to that field of rape can increase the yield by 50 to 20 percent which is to me is amazing and the oil content will also increase by four percent by to those crops and that's just by having two wow. honeybee colonies on site and it's not just about the honeybees you know we've got the bumblebees we've got the solitary bees we've got moths butterflies wasps even you know they've all got their place in that cycle of pollination that we massively have taken for granted over the years yeah and that was my, my next question, really, because obviously me and you have spoken before and you presented me with those facts and I, my mind was slightly blown because that's, that's huge. But I guess my next question is as well, if you brought this back to basics, um, you know, like we've said, there's lots of beekeepers now out there, people in the cities are keeping bees, rooftop beehives, all that sort of stuff. Without, without bees in this system what's what's the result of that so it's estimated um without bees we would have well we would have to hand pollinate our crops so what's happened over the years is evolution our plants have evolved as well and they've evolved to breed reproduce create those fruits those seeds the the plant that we know and use to reproduce through insect and animal pollination so if we lose those insects and animals our plants can't reproduce or most of our plants can't reproduce there are some that you know are wind pollinated etc but a lot of the food that we know today and that we feed our animals are insect pollinated so we lose we lose out and not you know not only that it's not just about us and our food chain think about me looking out the window of your car and you're driving down a road you see fields with hedges beautiful hedges of you know hawthorn blackberries how many blackberry plants do we have a lot of our hedges consist of thick bush like flora they're also pollinated and they rely on our on our bees for pollination along with a lot of our trees a lot of our woodland i just i can't i can't you know express how important they are apart from putting some figures out there for you and that you know in the UK I think it's 1.8 million in the world I think it's I mean don't quote me on these exact quotes but it's in the billions of what we would need to to hand pollinate and actually unfortunately in some places like China they have destroyed their insect pollinations to the point where they are having to hand pollinate wow. and the the yield that they get from a hand pollinated plant because it's not 
it, they haven't evolved to be pollinated by us. Yeah. They've evolved to be pollinated by a bee or an insect. So is they're just not getting the return in the fruits and the crops that the bees can can efficiently do for us. And the bees actually do it's accidental. The bees don't know they're pollinating. They don't leave the colony to go out and pollinate our crops. They go to forage for their own food. Mm. And in doing that, they are very generous and give us accidental pollination. And, and I think it's wonderful that we can get a return on them without having to you know, commercially farm them and push them because that's what they naturally need to do is forage. We're just very lucky that they give us, give us that pollination service in hand. You know, touching on the point that you just said about, you know, look out the window, look at everything that the countryside has to offer. This particular campaign, Farming Can, is about telling people about how integrated and layered farming is and how that connects to society. So I think that's a really important point to kind of break down all those barriers and say, you know, this is really important. Yeah, it's massively important. And as well, like for the farmers, you know, we've seen a massive increase in the cost of fertilizers, certainly this year. Yeah. Over yeah. the last few years, I think it's been going up anyway. But, you know, if we can get back to some sort of balance, it, organic farming is brilliant. And yes, it, personally, it, it's a way forward. But we don't have to go fully organic. There's certain things that our farmers can do. You know, and our people at home in our gardens, our back gardens, just putting a picnic size patch of space for nature wildflowers in can can feed millions of bees in a day but things such as you know putting clover into your into your field that fixes the nitrogen for you and also feeds hundreds of hundreds of millions of bees and insects in turn so we can we can get back to some sort of balance so we can hold the hand of nature and, and really get what we need, but also give back to nature at the same time. I think that would be really interesting as well to look at what small aspects of your farming business you can tweak, you know, such as those that you've just touched on to, to help try and tackle these issues that we're having. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've got the countryside stewardship schemes coming in with our pollinator strips um, and woodland protection grants and all those types of things they're they're really great we should definitely be looking at them if you know if we've got that land and that farming land that you know you want to do a little bit more around your farm to help the bees help all insects you know all small mammals then have a look at the grants and stuff because that's what they're there for they're there to encourage us to try and give back to the environment a bit more and you can still you know putting wildflower strips in you can still make hay off that you can still do you know you're still you're not just completely losing that land um there's, there's certainly lots that we can do but I feel like that's a massive conversation that we yeah. just have a lot of time <laughs> well let, let's talk about the benefit to to uh farms because obviously at the so you guys you know you would for example if a farmer had the right space on their land um, and it was the right environment, you would be able to put a hive on there and you would take care of it for them. Is that is that right? That's how it works? Yeah, that's right. So we will work with farmers um, throughout the UK to site hives, but not only siting hives, it's important to not forget our other bees and insects, as I keep saying, as we'll look at the farms and see, okay, what populations might you have here? Do you have bumblebees? You've got solitary bees. What other insects have you got? 
um, how can we help them first? And then, you know, if we've got crops, you're growing, you know, field beans, for example, um, just another statistic for you, having honeybees on site can increase um, the yield of beans by uh, 1,300 kilograms per acre um, just by introducing honeybee colonies. So then we'll talk to them about what crops are they laying? What, what are we doing? that needs help from bees, but equally, how can we increase natural populations of other insects and birds and bats, et cetera, as well? So it's a full kind of service. It's not just we fight some bees and leave them to it. No, we manage them in a, a welfare-friendly way. Um, the way that we beekeep and all of our beekeepers throughout the UK, certainly working under Buckley's Bees name, is that we will work with the bees for what's right for the bees. So. An example of that is the honey that's taken. We will only take an excess. If there's no excess honey, we don't get we don't get it. That's that's the way I have always beekeep, and that's the way I think that we should. So the bees are left with the food sources that they have made, that they deserve, they've done themselves. And if there's an excess, we'll take it, but only if there's an excess. And that's at the end of the season. So you know, there's something called June Gap here in the UK, where we wait for, unfortunately, the spring flora to finish and the summer flora to start. Now, that's very weather depending, and sometimes we don't get that. But if the bees have made that early spring crop honey, a lot of people can make the mistake by taking the honey that early on. Well, actually, have you recognised that, the, you know, we've got that gap in flora, the bees need that honey. So leave the honey. We don't come first. It's all very, I want it, and it is being very sustainable, very environmentally friendly. And, and if there's an overpopulation of bees or, or the pollinators within an area that we've been asked to look at, I won't cite bees. I'm not scared to say no. Say no. The bees that are already there come first. And that's what we do. So we work with whichever client it might be. We'll work to try and find a balance and a solution. But the first thing I always try and do is increase that natural environment that's already there before then bringing bees on on site we've actually we went international um two years ago so we actually are worldwide now by the end of this year we should be in every continent but what we do internationally is working within the right that country for the right native bees of that country we don't import we also increase the local jobs so all my beekeepers are local to the area where the hives are so a local beekeeper local bees and also the equipment as, as far as i possibly can it, it, it is from the country that the bees are in so everything's very kept very close knit um with small miles so i've got quite a few bees around the world <laughs> And I, last time we spoke as well, I liked that um, there was another aspect to this as well. And you, and you mentioned the mental health of farmers. Um, and I thought that was a really nice added benefit to this as well, because, you know, as we know, it's a huge topic within farming. Yeah, so beekeeping has always been a part of us. And I want that to share with everyone that becomes, you know, well, with everyone everyone full stop because they can offer that just that breathing space that watching them flying seeing where they're coming from what pollen are they coming in with what different colors have they got on their legs where has that bee been to produce that product 
they're just absolutely fascinating and something that I'm really passionate about from own experiences with own my own family members with mental health um have been that by just opening the lid on a beehive you don't even have to open a beehive just by watching them on the flight boards standing there and just going into this not dream but like thinking about where that bee's been what's that bee doing in its life what what's it seen what's it done is just absolutely fascinating and it takes your mind away from those those daily stresses those you know our, our crazy minds go at 110 percent most of the time you just stop and just focus on that one thing it does work wonders not just for your mental health but your physical health just stop and breathe and take in what you're doing farmers especially you're, you know with I think we forget how lucky we are to have that green space around us yeah. that open space you know we work so hard that we we don't take a moment to think this is mine I did this you know I'm, I'm doing I'm doing all right and we need to remember that that you know it's okay not to be okay and by watching the bees it, it's just absolutely fascinating and it just brings home how important nature is to us and I think that's yeah. become more apparent hasn't it obviously over the last two years it's um it's become quite evident that we all need we all need that moment of being present um just in terms of can we talk about your experience on your farm um with you've obviously got the wildlife corridors you were saying last time and um what what sort of system do you run so we're um yeah so i talk about the corridors as our hedgerows are very important um you know over the years we have cut down hedges made fields bigger um you know tb is a, a big issue unfortunately that was, as farmers have to deal with um and we swear by here that we've never really interfered with our hedges or our fields we've kept them you know as strong as we possibly can and yes we've always had the bees as a focus for that um but we've never had tb in 40 years of being here all the farms around us have and okay yes we've probably got uh, we have got a badger set at the bottom of one of the fields um they probably don't have tb hopefully they don't get tb but i'm sure by having strong healthy hedgerows and corridors for those mammals to run through they're not going through the middles of our fields i mean don't get me wrong i'm sure maybe they do i'm not making any claims here but we are sure that because we've got those healthy hedgerows and corridors is the reason why we have been so lucky and not to have a tv breakdown in 40 years is it um is it just a low input beef system that you've got or have you got any uh, arable land or yeah no it's just beef um uh yeah just beef uh we've only got a small herd pedigree which we push for uh breeding bulls um and uh, the heifers go back into the breeding herd normally um and depending on what's going on at that time but yeah, yeah. um so we're very small scale compared to obviously some of our our bigger farmers and clients um but yeah we we get it you know we we, we're one of you <laughs> in terms of um you know the, the 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 bigger corporations and businesses that that you now work with in terms of um the bees are we can we mention any are we allowed to say 
a few or you know just a couple that have got on board with this because I think it's important to show as well well they're all great but I mean for this conversation is that we're working with Arla Dairies um and in turn we work with Yo Valley um a few other names under that which I can't quite mention but um we're citing what we do is we cite the beehives on farms uh, through that so the dairy herds that are producing the milk and the bees are on on site there with those um cows um which is great um we also work with um clients such as Bentley Motors um Taylor Wimpy so with Taylor Wimpy we're working to get beehives involved in um every new development that's coming up so we work with them um to engage the public um bringing bees onto site uh replanting the you know the developments with wildflowers uh, spaces for nature um trying to give back to what may have been taken from that development being put there um so we're doing really great things. We've got really great clients on board and we work with, oh, another one is Sykes Cottages in the holiday lettings. They're really great on there, um, wanting to give back to the environment. And um, there's quite a few and I'm not going to mention them all, yeah, but no, um, I'm very lucky to work with some of the fabulous names out there. Have you seen the Arla B Road initiative? I have, yeah. Yeah. The B maps, which is great. So that's for farmers to um, well it's essentially to link be able to link so insects can kind of stop along the way um have places of rest and food um which is wonderful initiative and um if I can encourage everyone to take a look at that and have a look and do a little bit if you can that would be great can you Um, explain to me how you can get involved in that oh so um to to plant to plant wildflowers so it's to put on wildflowers and that feeding station within your fields within your gardens along along the route so that okay. I think the initiative is essentially to have throughout the UK wildflowers and food everywhere within the UK so that a bee would never have to not go without food because okay. it would be able to reach the station throughout the UK. Okay so let's just finish up on um, perhaps some advice or tips for people who want to learn more or get a bit more involved but on a maybe a small scale um I think even down to you know like we're all told to for example if you see a bee that's tired uh give it some sugar water is that is that the correct thing to do like yeah. I've got children that's a great way to get children so involved as well one thing I would say that quite a lot of people seem to think is the right thing to do is do not put sugar feeders into your gardens. Don't feed the bees with sugar water on a regular basis because that makes the bees then become reliant on that food. It's also white sugar that is not a natural product for the bees to be feeding on. They should be on the wildflowers. They should be collecting nectar and the pollen. Um, yes, if a bee is tired and you've got you know one bee on, on your path that's very tired, it needs a break, if you haven't, firstly, if you've got some great flowers in your garden, go and put the bee on the flower. If it's still struggling or you haven't got those flowers, some sugar water will give it a boost of energy for it to get on its way and it will help, yes. But don't let those bees become reliant on you feeding them sugar water. It's the worst thing that you could do. Equally, don't feed bees honey. 
unless you are the beekeeper and you have taken that honey from that hive. So uh, honey can, food for bees can transmit diseases. And if you have some food that has got some, something wrong with it, you are essentially feeding those bees honey that's come from somewhere completely random. You don't know anything about it. And essentially it could have a negative effect on those bees. Um, equally, if you're buying honey from the supermarket, um, one massive thing I'm going to hopefully everyone will hear from this um, podcast is your honey. When you're buying honey, look at the label on the back. We're, we're having such a difficult time at the moment as beekeepers with the labeling of honey, because a lot of honey in the supermarket, honey in the supermarket is sugar syrup, or it's had, you know, it's come from China, it's come from all different countries all over the world. It will say from EU countries, non-EU countries, or a blend of honey, look out for all those buzzwords, because that's not real honey. Real honey is from a local beekeeper down the road that's done nothing to it apart from jar it. So if you can support your local beekeepers or at least be buying that, okay, it may be more expensive. Don't buy your squeezy jars of honey because again, that's been through a processing um, to, to make it not granulate in the, in the squeezy bottle. So granulation is a natural process of honey. It's okay, it's not gone off. It's okay to use if your honey has set in the jar. And actually that's some of the best honey you can get a hold of is if, if you can get that, that honey that granulates means it's pretty probably pretty pure um so just look out at your labels buy local you know we're all buying local at the moment do it with your honey too and support those local beekeepers because quite often your local beekeepers are actually doing the most for the environment as well um and yes we do go into school I went on a complete tangent then, didn't no I? <laughs> that was really interesting actually because obviously you know we are in a a, a society where like health foods are, you know, pe- people, they're at the top of people's shopping lists, aren't they? So I think that's really, yeah. really important because I think that, you know, the labelling issue, that goes much, that goes beyond honey, doesn't it? That counts yeah, for, yeah, you know, yeah. all the things that we are trying to say to people, you know, to support support British farmers, support local. You, it takes a minute to look at these things, but actually it's really important. Yeah, and it's better for your health as well. You know, you're putting a proper product into your body. You're not putting some horrible glucose solution, you know, or some random meat from somewhere, whatever product yeah. it might be. You know, look after yourself as well. Yeah, uh, farming is obviously changing. And there's a lot of farmers out there unsure about what the future will hold and, you know, how how they can future-proof their business is, is, is a big question. But for any farmers listening who want to take that next step in their environmental journey or they're interested in, in what you've been saying today, what, what kind of advice would you give to them? What's the, what's the first step? What's the, something small that they could maybe dip their toe into? I think, I think probably um, having, having a look at the, the stewardship schemes, certainly for me, is, is positive that they, you know, the government are trying to recognise we need to change the environment and help farmers along the way with doing that. Um, I think having a look at those, also talking to local, other local farmers within your area, but if you can get a community together of a few of you, you know, that have got a common goal, 
you, you can talk, you know, and that's great for your mental health as well, is talking to the other farmers. What are you doing? What can we do different in our area? What do we need to, to change and move with the times? Not change, but, you know, move with the times, I think is a great way to explain it. Um, certainly feel free to drop me an email. I'm more than happy to talk about bees or, you know, try and help you get into contact with someone within your area. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of stuff out there, but having to fi- trying to find it is, is the hardest hardest thing so if if you talk to someone you never know you know john down the road with 300 head of cows might have done this recently and got a grant for it you never know so um i think talking and it's something that we're not very good at (laughs) agreed and i think that communal working element is something that we probably have to look at a bit more um and benefiting from each other's business yeah, for sure. Yeah, great, and also tapping into those resources from you know NFU, CLA, um, all those corporations that we are parts of or may not be a part of, but give them a ring. Ask, you know, they 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 know better than a lot of us what what's the government putting out, what's happening, where, what can we do to to do more. Um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the starting points for sure, and who knows where it might go. Well, that's the end of this week's episode and I really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it. It was really wonderful to hear those personal memories. So if you want to enjoy some more Jubilee content from Farmers Guardian, go to fginsight.com forward slash Jubilee. And for more information on Farming Can, please visit fginsight.com forward slash Farming Can dash ag. Lucky for you, you won't have to wait another week for another Over the Farmgate podcast as we have a special British Farming Awards episode tomorrow, Saturday, June 4th. So please, please check that out. From me, it's goodbye, but don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platform or get in touch at podcasts at farmersguardian.com. Bye for now. <laughs>